You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org. Thanks for gathering here with us today. If you haven't met me before, sorry about that. Uh, my name is Zuko, and I serve as one of the hosts here at the church. Uh, Providence is a church formed around a simple vision, and that is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. And to that end, we teach from the scriptures each and every week because we believe that they've been given to us that we might know, worship, and obey Jesus. Uh, we're currently in a series in the book of Mark titled King and Crown, where we've been looking at the life of Jesus and also how our culture tries to find their identity outside of him. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the seat pockets just in front of your seats. Um, again, we'll be reading from Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. Um, If you're able, stand with me for the reading of God's word. Providence, hear the word of the Lord. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to trap him in his words. When they came, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and don't care what anyone thinks, nor do you show partiality, but teach the way of God truthfully. Is it not lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought him a coin whose image image and inscription is this, he asked them. Caesar's, they replied. Jesus told them, Give to Caesar things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were utterly amazed at him. Providence is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone. Good morning to you. I want to welcome you to Providence. My name is Cord. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. And if it's your first time, thanks for making us a part of your week. We're really glad that you're here. And we really hope that you uh, have a good time with us this morning and you enjoy yourself. Like Luke said, we're continuing our work through the book of Mark. And so this morning we have um, less verses, still power packed. There's lots to be said about these passages. So I want to jump in as quickly as we can. This morning I get to talk about taxes, so I know that I just want to say you're welcome ahead of time that I'm offering you this great service. And um, no, the reason that this this passage is so important and why uh, I chose to keep it isolated from uh, taking on some other passages that surround it is because remember, this is Passion Week that we're covering here in the book of Mark meaning it's the last week of Jesus's life uh, on earth before the crucifixion. Then of course he's resurrected three days later. But at the trials of Jesus, there are two major themes that come out. The first theme of the trial of Jesus with the Sanhedrin and the religious elite is that they accuse Jesus of making himself equal with God. Okay. This blasphemy is what they charge him with. And then of course, with his own words, they say, ah, he's, he's, you know, he's, he said it himself. He's the son of man. So he's guilty. Problem is that these same men could not then have him put to death because they had not the authority to put him to death. So they had to bring him to the Roman trial. And at the Roman trial, the primary charge against Jesus that ends up sticking, uh, even not at the seemingly not at the will of Pontius Pilate because he washed his hands, but he does it anyway, is that Jesus forbade the people to pay taxes and render to Caesar his due because he said he himself was a king. So this passage right here is really what ends up being the thing that gets Jesus 
the crucifixion charge, which I think is, is, is essential and important. And so we want to take some time, walk through this. What does it mean for us? But before we do, I want to pray for us, and I want to ask the Lord to speak to us through his word. So if you'll bow your heads, I'll pray, and then we'll just jump right into the passage. Father, thank you so much for the great opportunity, the privilege that we have to come together, to gather as your children, to worship you in song, to worship you in submission to your word, to worship you in the taking of the table, the celebration of your broken body and shed blood on our behalf for our sins, that we might be reconciled to the Father. We thank you that we get to come freely, God, and without fear of retribution to sing and to bring glory to your name. We pray now that as we open up your word, that you would soften our hearts, open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear. Give us that which we do not have, but we do, that we need. Whether we know we need it or not, my God, we pray you would meet that need. For those that need encouragement, we pray that you would be the God of all encouragement. For those that need comfort this morning, we pray that you would bring great comfort. For those that need admonition, my God, bring them admonition in you. Whatever it is that we need and you know that we need, we entrust ourselves to you now. And we ask that you would meet that need and help us to receive it through the truth of your word and the power and ministry of your Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, let's jump right in. I'm going to start in verse 13. I'm just going to read two verses and then we'll talk a little bit about them. Remember where we've been, by the way. We have been in this series of Jesus being accused by different groups of people as they prepare to arrest him. And they're trying to catch him in, uh, they're trying to trap his own words so they'd have evidence and credibility in their arresting. That's, that's the idea here in the last few stanzas. So now we got, here we go again, another group shows up and the group's important, the group's interesting, and we'll talk about why. Verse 13, and they sent him to some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. There it is again. What's their, what's their aim? To have a good conversation with Jesus? To learn from him? No, to trap him in his talk. That's the aim. That's the goal. This is not a good faith conversation. Verse 14. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them? Or should we not? Okay, so let's start with these two groups. Who are they? The Pharisees and the Herodians. Well, we've talked a little bit about it. I'm going to try to do it as quickly as possible. And because of that, you'll leave a lot out. But the Pharisees would be that religious group who have a high view of the law. But specifically, politically, they would be at opposition with the Roman party and the Roman rule of law. They would be kind of your traditionalists in Israel that believe this is the land that was given to us as God brought us out of the land of Egypt and therefore any kind of tyranny, any kind of occupation here, God's going to bring a Messiah who's going to, who's going to relieve us from that, this Messiah we're looking for who's going to relieve us from Roman occupation. And so they would have been temporarily cooperative with the Romans, but only to maintain their position in Israel, which is their religious position in which they would use to bring the people in the hopes of a Messiah back in adherence with the law. In many ways, the Pharisees did love the scriptures, looking for the Messiah. They have lots of faults and flaws, but these are guys who you would have most likely considered to be solid Bible-believing dudes, right? Um, and in so doing, they hated the Roman political parties, but they're willing to work with them while they hold their nose, right? 
The other side is the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? Well, these are Jews that are committed to King Herod as a hope for the Jewish people. Now they have this guy who is a Jew and who is uh, converted in his faith and therefore these Herodians believe, well, now we actually do have a king who's got an in with Caesar and so perhaps this man can be leveraged. Perhaps he's not the Messiah, but perhaps he's good enough. And so these two groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, listen, are really strange bedfellows. They should not be building uh, common ground. They, They disagree on so many fronts. The Herodians would have been much more pro-Roman rule because it was the Romans, after all, that gave Herod his seat. So they would have been much more pro-Roman rule, pro-taxes. Pharisees would have been anti-taxes, anti-Roman rule. So these two political parties, the Bible tells us, get together, even though they probably argue all the time, in order to do what? In order to accuse Jesus. The Pharisees would have seen the Herodians as total sellouts. The Herodians would have seen the Pharisees as unpractical zealots. They would not have liked each other. But I want to point out to you, because we've gone a long way from chapter 3 in Mark to chapter 12, this is not the first time we see this. Actually, we see this really early on in Jesus' ministry. Look at what we read in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately had held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. So this, group, this, uh, this kind of co-op, this uh, interest that these two groups have uh, in destroying Jesus is not new. I ran across this quote by Matthew Henry, and I thought that it kind of sums up this portion of scripture very well. He says, quote, it is not a new thing for those that are at variance in other things to join together in a confederacy against Christ. I'm going to read that again. It is not a new thing for those that are at variance in other things to join in a confederacy against Christ. In other words, resistance to the Lord Jesus and unbelief will find company more easily, actually, often, than even we find unity, sadly, within the church. It's not coincidental that there is a resistance to Jesus that's so strong that even great enemies make friends to resist him. Jesus himself said that. He had a way of basically being a sword, a dividing line in the world, that he was either the stench of death to people or he was the aroma of life to people. And some people who are totally at odds would come together in reconciliation in how they viewed Jesus as the aroma of life. And there would be some who are totally at odds that come together in staunch opposition to Jesus. And that's what we see here. So what should we do with that? Well, I just want to point out to you and I've said this a number of times, it bears in mind again here. A spiritual battle is waging around you constantly. And we have to, as Christians, remind each other, the two opposing parties in this cosmic battle are not primarily the earthly parties that you and I see constantly put before our faces. The real battles in the world are not nation against nation or Republican versus Democrat. The real battle that's waging is a spiritual battle of the forces of evil against the Lord Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. That's what the Christian worldview has always set forward. And it manifests itself in physical ways, but what you'll notice is if you put your hope in specific sides in the earthly sense, you will be deceived because sometimes, hear me, sometimes two opposing sides of an argument earthly are actually totally co-opted against the one side of Jesus. You notice what's happening here? You could have been a pro-Pharisee or a pro-Herodian in this time, and guess what? Both of them would have led you away from belief in Jesus Christ 
because the enemy is more crafty than any other beast of the field. He knows the end game is not for you to vote right. The end game is for you to know and trust the Lord Jesus Christ. He does not care what means through which he can get you deceived about him. So, remember, this opposition is the works of evil. And hear me, not just against you. I want you to picture David and Goliath. In that story, there is David, who is a type of Christ. There is Goliath, who is a type of Satan, sin, death, hell, the grave, the enemy. And then there is the children of Israel. You and I are like the children of Israel, And we're just kind of shaking in our boots with our armor, hoping that someone will step up and defeat the great giant. And Jesus is the greater David who's come and done that great job for us. So yes, Goliath hates you, but hear me, friends, that's ancillary to how much he hates Christ. So you're like the byproduct of that hatred. Satan hates Christ, and therefore, because you're his, hates you. And his attack on you is actually mostly just an attack on the Lord Jesus Christ who loves you. That's something we have to see. Now, I want to ask this question because it seems important to ask it. Why is this mundane idea of taxation so central to this story of Jesus' life? Can we agree that's kind of odd? Like taxes is something, it's not a new idea. Okay, I mean... Let's think about it. I mean, we're Americans, so like taxation seems to be kind of ingrained in us. Like when I said it, you guys were like, oh, you know, ready to go storm King George's castle and stuff. Because it's in us, right? There's a part of us that we don't like that idea. But why is taxation at the center of the Son of God coming into the world? That's the thing that they get him with. This feels like a like an inverse Al Capone moment, you know, where Al Capone goes to Alcatraz for tax evasion rather than all the crazy murders. It's like they take Jesus and crucify him for what? Not paying taxes or encouraging others not to pay taxes. Isn't that weird to you? Well, I want to talk a little bit about why that might be. But let's start with saying, what was the tax system like and what is Jesus doing here? First of all, this question is posed to him so hypocritically. They're saying, hey, Should we be loyal to Caesar even more than we're loyal to God? I mean, isn't that what taxation is? And the reason that they would say this is because on the coin, and this is pretty well agreed upon by every historian and also theologian, that we pretty much know which coin Jesus asked them to bring to him. It was the coin of Tiberius Caesar, not Caesar Augustus. That was the Caesar when Jesus was born. But Caesar Augustus had died. His son Tiberius had taken the throne. And Tiberius had minted new coins. And on the front, his face was on the coin with an inscription that read, the son of the divine Augustus. And then on the back of the coin, there was, whether it be a a priestess or a priest sitting on a priestly throne with uh, a rod in the hand, um, with with a footstool underneath, It was a priest nonetheless, and it just basically said something to the effect of the supreme priest. So Tiberius had basically minted a coin, fancying himself to being the son of the divine and the high priest, which would have really chapped up the Pharisees. Can we agree? Not interested in that. And all the Jews would have been not liking it. And so it seems like this would be a legitimate question. Is it not? Should we give taxes to this guy who deifies himself? Should we pay tribute to the guy like this? But Jesus, the Bible tells us, knows that they are hypocrites. They are not asking him 
for a legitimate answer. They are asking to trap him. What do they mean? If he says, yes, pay taxes, they are going to turn on him so quickly. They will tell the people, you see, he's not with you. But if Jesus says, no, you shouldn't pay taxes, the Pharisees are willing to bend their own convictions to join with the Herodians to get him killed. That's the trap that's set. Jesus knows that's the trap that's set. Watch how he responds in the way that only Jesus can. Verse 15, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. So they brought him one. And he said to them, I want you to listen to these words. What likeness, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and then to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Another, another uh, gospel records that they marvel at him and walk away silently. He's confounded them. They cannot, they cannot speak back to this answer that he gives. But what is his response? Well, Caesar owns the money. Give it back to him. He says, Caesar's the one who minted the coins. He has the authority to do with this coins what he chooses. So if he commands them back, he owns them. After all, why don't you give it back to him? But then he doesn't leave it at that. Then he says, but, you know, and then just give God what's his, which just puts them at, it puts them at ease at first, and then it puts them at odds quickly. Quickly, there's a tension in their heart, because what's God's? Well, he, he didn't leave them without a hint, by the way, of what that is, and we'll get into it in a moment. But the question that Jesus doesn't ask outwardly, but that lingers in the air is something like this. Yeah, Caesar owns the money, so give it back to him, but who owns you? That's the question that lingers in the air. Now, why taxation? Why has it been such a central question for humanity? Well, I've already mentioned that obviously for Americans, we have a keen sense of this. It's one of our primary grievances in the Declaration of Independence. If you haven't read it, it's a wonderful document. Get after it. But this is not the only time in the history of the world. We're not unique in this. In fact, we're much more modern in this. This is, you know, thousands of years of many upheavals, many times that the people have gotten back, even in the scriptures, and gotten upset, like in King Rehoboam's time, when Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, said, I'm going to tax you much worse than my father did. You just wait, and the people rise up in anger. This happens many times throughout the scriptures. Taxation is a central issue in history. But what do we see in the New Testament? This is not coincidental, by the way, okay? This is not incidental. What happens in the New Testament with taxation? Well, let's just list out a few things. Number one, is it coincidental that Jesus calls Matthew to be one of his disciples who's a tax collector? Couldn't he have dodged that? You know, like whenever you have a meeting about sermon series and you're like, why don't we dodge the controversial one? If you're in, a, if you're in HR and you're about to hire somebody, Matthew would have been the guy that you're like, let's just pass on that controversy of hiring old Matt. You know, not Jesus, not Jesus hires him right on alongside his guy that will work in his cubicle in the wilderness, Simon the Zealot. Well, who's Simon the Zealot? He'd be a guy that would be, let's just say, not pro-taxation. Then Jesus would do crazy things like he would call out the tax collecting his soldiers and say, do not defraud anyone, pay the people back. His cousin was John the Baptist, who was not a friend of Herod and the Romans. Not at all. Jesus would have been known for this, and yet Jesus did things like what? He sat and had dinner with tax collectors, so much so that the Pharisees said, I hate this guy. Why does he keep eating with this filth of our country? 
Jesus would double down on it. Then he would go around the route that he should go. The shortest route to the place he's going would have been straightforward. He goes all the way around to Jericho where he finds a small man in a tree who he points out and says, let's go to your house for dinner, who happens to be a tax collector that is not only a fraud, but he is a major fraud. He was frauding people all the time of their money as a tax collector. And then he comes to know Christ and it says he paid them all back fourfold. First of all, if he had that kind of money, how much fraud do you think this guy was involved in? And then, of course, you get weird things like Paul, the man who stood up and planted churches, and he was a, a rabble rouser. There were riots in the Roman provinces because he preached the gospel. You think this guy's got to be, you know, anti-establishment. And you have Paul saying things like in the, in the book of Romans that, hey, pay your taxes. You should be in submission to the government. They wield the sword for, for God. You'll be fine. But then there's this passage, and I think this passage might be one of the most important passages about taxation in your Bible. And I'm going to read it. It's going to be put up behind me. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. Let me remind you of the context. Israel begs Samuel to give them a king. God says, don't worry, Samuel, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. They don't want me to be their king. And he says, I'll give them a king, but Warn them strictly, this is what you'll get if you get a human king, and tell them all the details. And here, we're going to see Samuel give them the details. This is 1 Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through 18. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, listen to this. These will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots, and to be his horsemen, and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He'll take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He'll take the 10th of your grain and of your vendors or vineyards and he will give it to the officers and to his servants he will take your male servants and your female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and he will put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in this day. Now, I don't know if you've read your Old Testament, but the very sad reality is the very next stanza says, and they said, give us our king, we must have him. Now, I don't know if you were reading through that, but this is like uh, taxation upon taxation upon taxation, isn't it? A tenth of this and a tenth of that and a tenth of this. It's like I was reading the, you know, IRS code. But, and then it goes even further, and then your daughters, and then your sons, and then your servants. I mean, they'll all be his for his own work, right? This is what your king will do to you. What is the Bible teaching us? Well, taxation under human governments will always increase to the point of human slavery. Why? Because the kings of the earth will inevitably, over generations, reject God as their king. That is a fact, and it's listed out for us in the scriptures, not history books. God has said this. They will reject God as their king. And when they do, tyranny will ensue, because why? Only God frees us. You can only be set at liberty by one. Now, intuitively, human beings understand this. We know that slavery is this form of ownership. It defies the natural order that God has created us in his image. 
And so the question, are we meant to pay tribute to an institution or to a government that has set itself over against God, that seems like a legitimate question, which is why we need to notice Jesus doesn't even answer it because he sees the hypocrisy. Now, I want you to, I want you to catch what Jesus really says. He looks to them and says, without saying it, you are perfectly willing, even you Pharisees who hate the taxation. You're perfectly willing to be slaves to these wicked rulers if it means that you can be free from me. That's what's really being said here. They are in cahoots against Jesus and they say, we'd rather be slaves to Caesar than be slaves to Christ. We'd rather be slaves to Caesar than accept that you're the Messiah. That's the tragedy of Passion Week. The only king that could really free them from their tyranny And I mean tyranny that goes well beyond the Roman emperor. I'm talking about tyranny of death and hell and the grave and sin and Satan and spiritual darkness. The only king that could do that, they rejected him. Now that is both the sad reality of Passion Week, but for those of us who are in Christ, you know the other side of the story, which is it was the only way and the necessary way that you and I get to experience freedom forever through the blood that was shed for us. Jesus told Peter this because Peter knew. He says, we believe you're the Messiah. We believe you're the only way. We're never going to let you die. And what did Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. This has to happen. This will happen. Now, I believe this is a position that we find ourselves in today. And listen, we're not new in, in human history, but I don't know if you guys have caught this. I mean, you could see this everywhere, but oh, there's, a, there's a stirring around the globe and in America as well the people are starting to get tired and worn out from the tyranny of wicked men, seeing the reality of what wicked leadership can do, looking at history books and saying, I don't want to go down that road, and because we know it intuitively, but I want to say to you as Christians, hear me, the same decision that was laid out for these men that they failed in is laid out before us today. The question is, will we allow ourselves to be coerced into thinking that there are any human solutions to this problem of freedom and slavery apart from the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if we fall into that trap, we will follow that same pattern. There is no other way to have freedom apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. No party, Herodian or Pharisee, will get you it. You have to join the Lord Jesus Christ. Every other offer of freedom on this life is a deceptive lie. It's a facade, smoke and mirrors. Even if every single solitary human being tells me that I am crazy in saying what I'm saying, I must say it. I have no other choice. What I'm telling you is fundamentally the most true thing you're going to hear this week. There is no freedom apart from Jesus Christ. There is no one who can set you at liberty. No thing, no institution, no power that can set you in freedom but Jesus Christ. Or as Jesus said, he who the Son of Man sets free is free indeed. True liberty comes through one man, Christ Jesus the Lord. And in the inverse, every human form of tyranny will come in the form of rejection of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Fundamentally, I feel obligated, and I'll tell you, I don't feel bad about it, an ounce. I know I should. I know that's what everything's been geared towards, but I just want to say, I want to apologize to absolutely nobody for what I'm about to say. Krishna cannot save, Muhammad cannot save, 
Buddha cannot save. Mother Earth cannot save. Mother Mary cannot save. Politicians cannot save. Professors cannot save. Technology cannot save. Medicine cannot save. Your health and fitness plan cannot save. Budgets cannot save. There is only one name given under heaven to men by which we can be saved, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we must, all of us, say it with courage, confidence, with the deepest sense of gratitude, with the deepest sense of belief. If every other person around you turns and says, you are nuts, I will gladly say, I stand here because I can stand nowhere else. Because everything else is shifting sand. And I want to tell you, if you're a Christian in the room this morning, your name is inscribed upon his heart. Take courage. You have been set at liberty by the king and no power of hell or scheme of man will pluck you from his hand. You're his. Now, I want to point out these, these few words. They are not throwaway words, friends. Mark uses them for a reason. Jesus said them, I believe, in Greek when he was speaking in this moment because he was trying to get their attention back to the beginning when he said, whose image or likeness is on this coin? Why did he say that? Well, because he was about to tell them that you can render to Caesar that because his image is on it, but then he's asking, whose image and likeness are you? So render unto God that which is God's. Well, what is God's? You, friends, all of you. Not a tenth, not just some. No, you're owned by the Lord. The Old Testament reference is that God made man in his image and his likeness. In the image of God, he created them. And then the inscription on their hearts that was marred through sin, he promises in Jeremiah, though your hearts be like stone, I will write upon their hearts my law and I will make them a heart of flesh. How will they do this? How is God going to accomplish this restoration? The Bible tells us in Colossians 1 verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, Jesus Christ, the perfect image. And then he will inscribe upon your heart the very law of God. And the Bible tells us that you and I, friends, are being conformed from one image of glory to the next into the image ultimately of the Son, Jesus Christ, his image, God's image. That's the image that you bear. And so because you bear his image, whose are you? Well, Paul seemed to think it was pretty simple. He said, know you not that you were bought with a price. And therefore, you are the temple of God. You're God's. The writers of the Westminster Confession seem to know it when they said for the very, their very first catechism is, what is our only hope in life and in death? That we are not our own, but we belong to God, body and soul. That's our hope. The image of God is on you, but not coincidentally. You know, the only two times the word inscription is used in your New Testament, it's used here with the inscription on Caesar's coin, and then it's used a couple chapters later when Pilate stands before the courts and says, I want you to write an inscription above the cross of this man. I want you to write Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. And here come the Herodians that love King Herod, and here come the Pharisees that can't stand, and they say, don't write that. Write, he says he's the king of the Jews. And Pilate looks at them and says, what I have written, I have written, inscribe it. He is the king of the Jews. And friends, what the Bible tells us is that the same God who providentially worked the hands of those craftsmen to inscribe that above the cross so that it would be a testimony and a witness against all who nailed him there, that that same very finger of God that leads providence inscribed on your heart the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You're his. 
a son or a daughter of God. The image of God is on you. The inscription of God is upon you. And if you are a Christian, you are being restored by Jesus Christ. The image of God being perfectly worked in you by the very handiwork of the creator. He is the potter and we are the clay. And so listen to me, there is a way that we could pay taxes and not be owned by Caesar. But there is no way that you can get out from underneath the slavery and the ownership of sin and Satan and death and hell apart from calling out to the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We will remain under the ownership of our great taskmaster. And it's not Pharaoh. And it's not Caesar. It's sin. But we can call out to the name of the Lord Jesus and we can be set free. Now hear me on this. The world is filled with all sorts of subversive tactics. I want to say this, and I wish I could say it more clearly, but I'll do my best. Oftentimes, the things that you think are so easy for you to get enslaved in, or maybe they're like obvious in the world. I'm not saying that they aren't seeking to enslave you spiritually, but remember that the enemy is much more crafty than you could ever imagine, and he seeks to enslave you in ways that you could never fully imagine, in the most subversive of ways, the most obvious of ways. Listen to me, the governments of men are merely the most prominent form that tyranny takes, but they are far from the only tyrant. There's constantly a battle going on for the souls of men and women. So how do you know if you're owned? Well, a couple of things I want to say. The first is, who or what can you not say no to? Who can you not withstand or what can you not withstand? We know that we must obey God, but if there be anything else or anyone else, perhaps we've permitted for something or someone to maybe take up residence on a throne they have no business sitting on. Does that make sense? Secondarily, in the positive sense, what do you run to when you are in need or you're in trouble? Who do you run to? Paul understood this better than any other writer in the New Testament. You know, Paul was like William Wallace before Mel Gibson showed up and painted his face. You guys remember, you know, William Wallace, he comes up in that famous speech. He stands before the men and says, you can go home and you could probably live. But then later on, when you're an old man in your beds at night, you'll ask yourself, what if I had stayed here and told these tyrants that you can take our lives, but you can never take our freedom? It's that wonderful line. Listen to me. I love that movie. It's wonderful. Might watch it this afternoon just because I said it. <laughs> Paul was already saying this stuff 2,000 years before that and living it. What do you think Philippians 1 is? For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's saying that in jail while they threaten his life and he's writing the letters while he's chained next to a guard who's reading what he's saying. I'm not afraid of you. I'm not scared of you. I am not enslaved because who the Son of Man has set me free. I am free indeed. Or like he says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. So it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You can't hurt Paul because he has already been set free by Jesus Christ. Paul actually understood that the greater, that the greater battle with slavery was happening within him. You need to start realize, realizing things like Romans 7, there's much depth to what Paul's saying. Remember 1 Corinthians 9, what does Paul say? He says, I put my body into subjection so that it would know that my body is here to serve the Lord and I'm not here to serve my body. What did he mean? He fasts 
so that his body would be in check and know that I will not be enslaved to my appetites, but my body will serve the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought of it like that? I'll tell you, I need to fast more just thinking about it. He's saying, even my own flesh, when it tells me get up and eat, I say, I do not do what you say. You do what I say. And I say, be hungry. That's what Paul understood. That's what Romans 7 is about. He says, there's a war within my members. My flesh tries to own me, but I won't let it own me. I, I, I let the spirit control me. And sometimes I lose and sometimes I win. And then he has this moment of despair. Who will save me from this body of death? The most wonderful line of all, thanks be to Christ. Jesus Christ, our Lord, for there is therefore no condemnation for all who are in Christ Jesus. Friends, we need to remember the war that we're in. It ain't just happening on Capitol Hill. Oh, what's happening there? I'm telling you right now, it's happening in your home. It's happening when you lay your head down to rest. It's happening right now as I'm preaching. It's going to happen when you walk out of here. We're living in a spiritual world as well as a physical world. So I want to consider this admonition from this text. What should we do then with this? Well, I don't only want us to be aware of it because then what happens, you start getting anxious, right? You start getting a little bit scared. You're like, okay, if I'm in a spiritual world and the enemy's trying to attack me and this is why I don't watch scary movies, Court, why don't you just stop? And I agree with you. And I'll say, man, I don't know if you, got, you feel like this, but I feel like this. Every time I turn on the news, I'm like, okay, so it could get pretty bad pretty soon. And then I turn it on again, and I'm like, oh, it is getting bad, getting worse. Turns out everything's on fire, literally. I don't know if you've been seeing this stuff, but here's what I don't want to do as a pastor. I don't want to do what I feel like the entire world wants for me to do, which is to say, don't worry about that. Peace, peace. That's no big, there's no problem. It's not going to be like that. It's all good. We're going to be just fine. I mean, as Americans, we're naturally optimists. You know, just like, we got this. We're Americans. We're going to win gold every, every single sport we're ever in. You know, that's how we think. But hear me, friends. All you got to do is read a book. It can get worse. It often does. Read a history book. Go to Europe. There's literally bullet holes in walls in buildings in Europe. You know why they left them there? It wasn't because they didn't have plaster. They left them there so when the people walk by, they could go, it can get bad. We need to remember that. We need to remember what led to it getting so bad. And so my aim here is to say, yes, it can get bad. And friends, it may get bad. But I'm not just chicken little saying the sky's falling. What I think we should do is ask ourselves, upon whom do we rely when it gets bad? Because Christians, you and you alone have this eternal heritage and hope that no one else can claim. And we are often not claiming it as our own because we think either A, it can never get that bad or B, that's all just spiritual talk. I'm, telling, I'm here to tell you, A, it can get that bad and B, it's not spiritual talk. This is our hope. Let us cast off every weight and sin that so closely entangles us. Let us run the race with endurance set out before us. Let us say to anything that seeks to claim ownership of our souls, a simple sentence that is only two letters, no, no. Let us run with endurance the race that God has set out. And most importantly, let us look to God who has promised to protect us, promised to guard us. John Piper has this wonderful quote. When we don't call upon the promises of God, we go into these spiritual battles, whether we believe they exist or not, like we have water guns trying to fight the fires of hell. 
See, sometimes we think that, you know, kind of like Tinkerbell, if I don't believe in her, she won't exist. So if I don't believe in spiritual warfare, it must not exist. No, you're just going in there, no armor at all, water guns. It's still going to happen. The battle's waging, okay? So for the Christian, what's our hope? It's that our God has given us many promises that he will protect us. He will be with us. And we need to claim these, begin to sing them, pray them, tell each other about them. Encourage one another with them. Remind each other with them. Listen to me. Pray them over your kids. Read them to your children at night. Read them to your children in the morning. Read them to your children in the car. Read them to each other. You know, not just, and listen, I am not saying that I do not advocate for potentially my having this uh, Second Amendment right by your bed. But hear me, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. The most important thing for you to have is the Lord Jesus Christ. So I'm going to end with this. What I'm going to do, I'm actually going to lead us in communion this morning. But I want to do it a little bit differently. First of all, I just want to say, if you do not know the Lord Jesus, do not walk out without trusting the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. There is no other name under heaven that's been given to you. He calls to you even now. He knocks at the door. He'll come in and sup with you. Friends, I cannot implore with you anymore. Trust Jesus. So don't take communion this morning if you're not a Christian, not because I want to exclude you, but because I want you to know Jesus so that when you take the communion, you will understand it, recognize it, experience it for what it is. But friends, if you're a Christian in the room, I'm going to do something a little different. I'm going to read to you some of the promises of God to protect you. And I want you to meditate on these together before we take of the supper of the Lord. I want you to think of this. God invites us every single Sunday, and it's called the Lord's table. What is he doing? He's, he's bringing us to the dinner table to say, if God be your father, whom do we have to fear? If, he, if we're sitting at the table of the true king, and he's sharing a meal with you, should that not give you a little bit of, I think I'm going to be okay? Like even if I get roughed up on the battlefield, like I think I'm going to be okay. I want to read to you these passages and then I'm going to pray for us and the band's going to come up and I'll give us about maybe a minute or two to reflect. Listen to this. Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. Listen to this. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord and their vindication is from me, declares the Lord. 2 Thessalonians 3, 3. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you, and he will not leave you nor forsake you. Isaiah 41, 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Psalm 34, 7. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. Psalm 5, 11. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. Psalm 34, verse 19. 
The righteous person may have many troubles, but the Lord delivers him from them all. And then lastly, this one should be familiar to you. This is Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the mountains. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. He will not let your foot slip. He who watches over you will not slumber. Indeed, he who watches over Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord watches over you. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun will not harm you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all harm. He will watch over your life. The Lord will watch over your coming and your going, both now and forevermore. Let me pray for us. Oh, Father, let us believe these truths. There are times where calamity feels like it's at every side, but Lord, help us to believe that you will watch over us. In your name, we take refuge. Lord Jesus, let us take refuge in the cleft of the rock of ages. Help us to enter into the ark through the door that was opened by the spear in your side. Let us hide ourselves in you and find refuge in you to have great confidence and courage that we can say like David, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil for you are with me. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you're with us this morning. As we reflect and before we take of communion together, would you meet us here by the power of your presence through the beauty of the supper of the Lord and through the singing and the gathering of the saints, God, would you help us to experience your goodness, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.